So this is Jilly, everyone, and uh, great to have you here. One of the uh, one of the many good things about the job I have, the calling I um, am called to, is get to meet lots of people and hear all sorts of stories uh, of all sorts of bits of life. And at our last newcomers lunch back in September, end of September, uh, you and Ben and uh, Phil were with us, uh, which is delightful, and um, sitting at your table, I just got to hear a little bit of your family story, but, but also of yours. I heard snippets, and I thought, that's great, really exciting, so I thought it'd just be lovely to hear that, to encourage the fellowship uh, of a story of the Lord's grace, really. So thank you for agreeing. I know you were meant to be on holiday, um, but that's got... So where were you going to be? We were... Uh, you might need to switch the switch to go green, just push the switch, that's it. We were supposed to be flying out today, actually, to Madeira. But um, because of the situation, and we were going for a month, um, for whatever reason, the Lord wanted us to stay behind. Okay. So, so um, I know Madeira would have been lovely to be heading to, but we're really glad you're here. So, um, Julie, just give us a little bit of biographical information you know about you of who you are obviously I've introduced Phil and Ben but okay. um, give us a kind of rooting of who you are at this present moment. So um, I'm one of six children um, and looking back at our background uh, my parents were Jehovah's Witnesses so I was brought up in a family of Jehovah's Witness and our life was based on a lot of fear to be honest, it was um, fear and maybe shame and sadness. My father had a very severe mental illness, and so it made things very difficult for my mum in particular. Um, and obviously on top of that, we had um, their faith to follow. So at school, we were taken out of all assemblies and um, not allowed to attend any kind of religious building. I'd never been inside a church. Um, and at one stage, um, for whatever reason, suddenly I was allowed to attend nativity plays. Um, and I was about 11, so I'd gone on to senior school and um, in this one particular nativity, I was given um, a line from Isaiah to read. And it was one that's going to be very familiar to you. It was, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Light has dawned upon them, dwellers in a land as dark as death. And I had to bellow this verse out, not having any understanding of what it was. But I would often ponder on who those people were walking in darkness and, and what that great light was. And I wouldn't find out until 30 years later. So what did kind of teenage life look like? Kind of was, was there a kind of routine of the week of, being, of going to the Kingdom Hall? And, and what would life for Jilly look like then? Mm. Well, we'd go to the Kingdom Hall and we'd go to the big conferences in London, but we had to be strictly obedient as children and as young people. So when we went out, so because there were six of us, we had to go two by two and hold hands. 
And if we didn't, my dad would get very annoyed about that and, and march us back home again. And then it would be exciting to get on a coach and go to Twickenham for a, a Kingdom Hall um, for, a, for a day. But um, when you got there, as children, there was nothing for children at that. I don't know if things have changed now, but we're talking a long time ago. And so you just had to sit there in obedience all day long, which was very hard and very boring. <laughs> <laughs> but as we started to get older, my mum was kind of ostracised because she'd had six children and um, they had a date for the end of the world and they thought it was wrong that my mum was continuing to have children and so she left and refused to go. And so that started to see the gradual kind of stepping back of all the children as well. My dad continued faithfully, but um, the rest of us started to ridicule all religions, to be honest. Um, and we called ourselves the non-Congoist. And then life went by. I met Phil at 23, and I praise God. I mean, I wasn't a Christian, but Where did you, you meet? Where did you meet? Uh, we met in Kent because Phil was a musician in the army. He'd come to um, Chatham to be in the Royal Engineers. And we met at my best friend's house, and her dad was the Archdeacon of Rochester. And um, Phil was friends with her, and I was friends with her. And she lives here. Okay. Uh, in Warwick, yeah. so not far. So it's been lovely to spend so much time with her. And as soon as I walked through the door of the Archdeaconry, Phil was there, I looked at him, and I just knew he was the man I was going to be marrying. Thankfully, that was in God's plan too. <laughs> We'd be married 38 years on this Friday. Um, so thankfully, uh, I'd met Phil, and then some years later, we had our wonderful Ben, about eight years later. Um, and so we were blessed with Ben, and really, all six children by then, it was all about education, getting a good job, making sure you'd got a nice house. So we were all successful in the world's eyes. We'd all, every single one of us had got a degree, we'd all got good careers, and we all owned our own home. So it seemed... So faith, faith didn't... You, you said you grew in hostility? You, that grew in just, hostility completely, yeah. So you, was it active hostile or just, it was just not part of your thinking in that time? Just, just not part of our thinking really at all anymore. You know, it was all about how you could do everything. How it was all back to the old works, really, in a way. So how, how we could improve everything. And then, um, when I got to the age of forty, um, everything seemed to crumble down. And within what seemed a very short space of time, um, my younger brother Mike my older sister Jane and my mum and dad were all diagnosed with cancer. And at first we had great hope of, of medication, etc. Um, but my younger brother Mike um, deteriorated very rapidly. And he had lymphoma and he was a doctor of psychology, he was a clinical psychologist. And he was married to Louise and they had two beautiful little boys then, they're grown-up men now, but they were four and six. And um, traditional medicine said it was nothing else they could do for Mike. And so 
Two weeks before he died, he went to the Bristol Cancer Centre, which is a centre for alternative therapies. And the lady who originally set it up was a Christian. And on the Wednesday evening, she came in, and everybody in the room had cancer, and she said she was going to do a guided visualisation with them. And she was very sensitive to people in the room and said, you may have a faith, and if you do, then think of your God. But if you don't, think of a friend. So my brother Mike started thinking, going through his list of friends. And they laid down, and she put some music on. And then instantly, Jesus came to my brother. And he said, Mike, I'm going to heal you. And Mike felt huge... He had a huge lump in his chest, for instance. He just felt this healing upon him. And then Jesus said to him, Mike, we're going to have fun. And they ran and skipped and danced for joy. Now, bearing in mind, he was just a bag of bones and no hair and would, was very, very weak at that stage. And he actually drove himself home. And now we're getting to a point where it's a few days before he died. And he came home and said to his lovely wife, Lou, um, you'll never guess who I've met. And, of course, she couldn't guess. <laughs> not top of the list, it's really, is it? It's not top of the list as being Jesus. So he, he said, Jesus Christ. And she said, oh, Mike, come on. You're a psychologist. You don't believe in all that. And he said, absolutely, I do, Lou. Please, will you find me a local vicar? I want to be baptised. Bless her heart, she did that immediately, and um, she got the lovely Robin, who I came to know later, and his wife, Eileen, and by then, um, Mike was too ill to leave the house, so they came to the house and did a beautiful baptism in the house, um, took a picture of Mike, he looked like an angel, a big smile on his face, and um, about a day or two later, it was evident from Lou that Mike was really going to die quite soon. So I went down with my older sister. And, you know, now, if I could go back in time, I would have so many questions for him. But at that stage, um, my thinking was, what are mum and dad going to think? And you know you don't talk to vicars. And it was just all those thoughts going around in my head. So all I could say, he had a baptism certificate by his bed, so I just said, congratulations, Mike. It was the best I knew to do at the time. Um, a couple of days later, Mike died, and he, it was a Sunday, and he was holding his, his wife's hand, and he said, Lou, this is such a beautiful place. I don't want to leave you. This is such a beautiful place. And that was his very last words. And then he died. By this stage, my older brother and sisters had arrived. And none of us really wanted to leave his bedside. But we knew that the undertakers were coming to take his body in the afternoon. So eventually, I said, I'll go down and make everyone a cup of tea. And... Where Mike lived was in a village called Pet, just outside Hastings. And his garden overlooked the most amazing fields, which were always just full of sheep grazing. And I went to put the kettle on, and at the same time I looked out at the window. 
And I thought I was seeing cardboard cutouts, to be honest, because there were sheep all separated, they weren't together, and they were all staring up into the sky, like this, like this. Very unnatural um, and completely all looking at the same thing. And I thought, this isn't funny, you know, to put cardboard cutouts, or maybe I'm just seeing things, because Mike's just died. So I looked at them for a bit longer, and then I went upstairs and got some other members of my family and asked them to come and see if I was seeing things. But we all looked at these sheep, and they stayed like that for about 20 minutes, and then one shook its head, and then they carried on grazing, doing what sheep do. That really shook my brain up a bit, and my heart with the Jesus story of Mike and the, and the sheep. And then we had Mike's funeral. Mike had organized his whole funeral. It was going to be a secular affair. And he changed it all at the last minute. And I'm guessing he picked hymns that maybe he'd heard when he was at senior school or something. But they were all beautiful Christian hymns. And it was full of psychologists, because all his colleagues were psychologists, of course. And this lovely um, guy who, who was Mike's boss, uh, fell off the lectern. He was totally overcome with what Mike had seen. and So it was quite a, a big thing going on down there. So after this, I tried to go back to work. And um, I had a responsible job. I was director of a housing association. Loads of staff. I'd been doing it for 12 years, and I loved it. But I used to go into work... And apparently, well, after about three weeks, my lovely PA came into my office and said, Jilly, we don't quite know how to say this to you, but you come into the office every day, you switch on your computer, and then you sit and look out of the window. And I said, well, it's this Jesus and these sheep. And she said, I, I really think you ought to be going home, maybe have a little rest. So I said, yep. Maybe, maybe that's right, and, uh, you know, cover for me, I'll be back tomorrow, never knowing I would actually never go back. So I went home, but of course, all that was going on in my mind were these things, so I phoned Robin, the vicar that had baptised Mike. So just to say, so um, Phil, at this point, isn't a follower of Jesus no, either? No, no, nor Ben at this stage no. either, neither of them. And... Your parents, you said, you know, what would they think about talking to vicars and your rest of your family? Well, we actually thought they wouldn't even come to Mike's funeral, yeah. but they did. Yeah. Um, because it was in a church, and obviously yeah. we'd been brought up to believe that vicars were evil. So it was a very tough thing for them to do, but they loved their son, so they yeah. came. But no, I, I think Phil just thought <laughs> something strange was going on, but bless him, he was very kind to me. I phoned Robin. And I said, oh, hi, Robin, it's Mike's sister, Jilly. Um, and he said, hi, Jilly, I've been waiting to hear from you. And I said, have you? <laughs> I said, well, please, can I come and talk to you? I would love to know what my brother had to say to you when you baptised him. So um, I had a big company car at the time. I drove down, down to Hastings and got to see him. And he said, I actually only had about 
an hour with your brother. He said, I would have loved to have longer with him, but I never had the chance to get to know him. But I can tell you one or two things that he was able to say to me. Um, Mike's house was full of books, and he was a big reader, and he had Zen Buddhism, you know, all the psychology books, all the philosophy books. But apparently one of the things was, he said, um, these books are lovely, but they're not the truth. And the truth has been so simple, and it has set me free. I said, my brother said that? And he apparently had said he'd been searching all his life. Well, I was absolutely flabbergasted at that, um, because you don't know what's going on in the heart of other people. And so I told Robin about the sheep. I said, you know, what, what's going on with these sheep? What was going, you know, what was happening? And he said, well, Julie, do you know about the good shepherd in the Bible? I said, no, not really. I can't remember anything about the Bible. Have you got a Bible? No. So he said, well, the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. Laid down his life for the sheep. I was absolutely flabbergasted by this. He gave me a little tract. But at the same time, unbeknown to me, two of my managers who I had employed were both Christians. And... One of them phoned me and said, Jilly, you know, how are things going? And I said, oh, you know, I think I need to get a Bible. So she said, I'm bringing one to you. And she bought me, actually, she bought me the message, which I know is a paraphrase. Well, I couldn't put it down. I read it from end to end. And I just couldn't believe what I read. And I thought back about walking in darkness, those people walking in darkness. And it was gradually from reading the stories, beginning to dawn on me that I was a person walking in darkness. And there was this Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And I started sitting up and thinking, wow, wow, does this mean I... I there's more to this terrible life, to the things that go on in this universe. And I looked at the tract that night. I, I could sleep in the day, and I was awake all night, to be honest, at this time. And I looked at this tract, and it, it, it said what lots of tracts do, but it was very helpful, you know. Father, forgive me. Forgive me my sins. I can't believe that you've come down into darkness so that I could see the light. I'm like, wow, that is just amazing. Please, please let me be your follower. And I just felt a lovely, deep sense of peace. And for the first time, I think in many years, a, a kind of release and a knowing that I can read this word and know the truth. And I was absolutely amazed by it. Well, you asked about um, Phil and Ben. At the same time as this was happening, Ben needed to be taken care of because I was spending time down with my brother. And so he had gone to Grandma in Wales and Grandma had taken Ben to church. And I think simultaneously, 
Ben, when he, when he had his baptism sometime later, he said, I fell in love with Jesus mm. on that day. And he has been a beautiful follower of Jesus ever since. And he's nearly going to be 30, and he was eight, eight years old at that stage, weren't you, Ben? One of the things I thought I would be doing was going back to work. I loved my job. I loved my team. It was such a big part of me. But Ben and I started going to church. And just like the words we've been singing tonight and the words that would go up and the words from the Bible, they were all upside down to everything I had ever believed. And I kept looking at them and thinking, I can't believe this. That's completely opposite to what I, I wanted. And I knew I wasn't the same person. I was a new creation as I learned as time went on. But um, I thought I would have to go back to work because Phil was just training to be a nurse at that time. And on a practical level, on a, um, a worldly level, our mortgage was 1100 He was earning 400 but it wasn't a problem because I was earning the big bucks. But so I thought, well, I've got to go back. Um, and I started praying in my head office to go and see the the chairman of the board was in Seven Oaks. I started praying all the way. And I said, God, I know I've got to go back. I've got to keep doing that till I'm 60. But please just give me the words and, you know, help me to say what's what I need to say. And I walked through the door. And I just said, I can't come back. I'm a completely different person. I can't go on to do what I was doing. And then I gave my whole testimony to my to the man that was you know, going to make up um, uh, lots of details of my future, actually. And he started crying, I was crying. And they came to an agreement and they gave us um, a big lump sum that enabled Phil to completely finish his training and for me not to have to go back. It was a big wrench because... I really loved it, and it took me a long time to get over because a lot of my self-worth, as I saw myself then, was tied up in that. But that's all in the past now. But, you know, this is 22 years ago. Um, so you said earlier on that your mum and dad at that point were quite poorly and another family member. What happened to them? Is the reason that God didn't want me to return to work was my sister Jane was going to die within a year. She lived in the next lane to us. We had moved to be beside her because she was our best friends. We did everything with them, her and her husband, and she adored Ben, of course. And um, by not going to work and working such long hours, I was able to go to see her nearly every day. And Ben and I were at church, so she wanted to hear the sermons. And by the time she died... She had given her life to the Lord, and she also could see a light that was just going on and on and on for her. So that was a very gracious thing that God did for us. And Phil was a slightly different story in that Phil had been brought up in a very religious kind of background. So until he went to the army when he was 16, he'd been to church three times a week. He was a server. And he would go, and the vicar would give 45-minute sermon, bless his heart, but it would just be Phil and the vicar's wife. And Phil just thought, oh, and he'd fall asleep. 
whether Jesus was ever mentioned, Phil never heard it. And he was pretty annoyed with me talking about Jesus because I couldn't stop. As you know, what happens when you first become a, a Christian, you can't stop. And, I, oh, and he was like, I know who God is, who that Jesus is you keep talking about. I, I, I just don't know where he fits in at all. But God had a plan, and we're so grateful that he had a plan that didn't take years. Um, one day we had a phone call from Ben's teacher at school, a lovely, lovely man, and he said, could he come and stay with us? So we said, of course he could. We cared for him a great deal. And he was a lapsed Christian, and he said to me and Ben, can I come to church with you on Sunday? And I thought, I can't take a strange man to church when my own husband has never been to church. <laughs> so I said to Phil, you're going to have to come. And he said, oh, I kind of get that. <laughs> I'll come because Alan's coming. So Alan and Phil came. And thankfully, the vicar was just like you and Phil, and the gospel was given. And Phil said, oh, that's who Jesus is. And it all fell into place for him as well. And so we praise God for um, the way he's worked for us. And we were blessing to be a blessing to others and to share our stories so that others can take um, courage from it and inspiration. That's amazing. Inspiring what the Lord is doing. Mm. So that was kind of in the 80s, I guess. Uh, no, oh. two, 2000. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I, I was 40, wrong. I'm 61 now. Okay, so I know from then you, you were living sort of in the southeast. Mm. Um, yes. You didn't go back to work. Phil trained as a nurse. Yes, he did. What happened then in, in that kind of revolution that happened in your family? What, what, how did the Lord lead there? Um, well, I then got a job for one day a week, which was lovely, as a journalist for um, charity, 1,400 charities across the southeast. And that was just wonderful for me because I knew that Ben was likely to be my only child. And I so wanted to spend time with him, which I did. But it also gave me the chance to meet the most wonderful friend at the school gates who had been a Christian since she was a little child and so faithfully, faithfully week by week, taught me, took me through the Bible and has done it ever since for 20 years. Every week now, wherever we are, we have a two-hour Zoom meeting on a Tuesday afternoon and she still teaches me. It's just been such a blessing. Um, so we continued to stay in the southeast um, and then we had a major, major sort of tragedy, I guess you'd call it. We were at a, a worship conference um, in Eastbourne one night for the weekend, and all we'd got with us was literally a overnight bag. And our house burned down. Um, and they stopped the conference. It was Lou Fellingham from Fat Fish singing at the time, and they had to stop it. Um, and it was Mike Pilavarchi, wasn't it? stopped and said, I'm so sorry, I'm going to have to call out Jilly Phil and Ben Thomas. Can you come to the side? And they said, please, can you ring the fire brigade? 
and our house had been burning for many hours because we lived in a country lane and we had two wood-burning stoves and our neighbours, one had gone by but thought it was the wood-burning stove initially so it must have been fairly contained at that stage but it then took three firemen, uh, three fire engines to put it out. So Ben and I never saw that house again actually because we couldn't bear the thought of going back to it. Um, but uh, I'm of you saying at the, at the newcomers' lunch that it was a, a very treasured place, and you could never see yourself moving from it, and it was it was home. It so was, many memories. Yeah. yeah. We'd lived there for 18, 20 years, hadn't we? So we could never see ourselves going, and that set us free. It's another part of that freedom journey, setting us free from stuff because we had no stuff. We had nothing left, um, and we went into church the next morning. And uh, a lovely couple came up so to us. Just, I'll just stop you there. But, so I haven't got time now, but Phil was telling me at this point about his cello. And he's a beautiful cellist. Um, so ask him another time about the cello and the fire, because it made it through. It did. Yeah. <laughs> and some of Ben's photographs, because that was the only thing we wanted. Not even the cello, just Ben's photographs as a baby. And some of them made it through. So yeah, you're at church, sorry to interrupt. No, that's okay. Um, so we were at church and a couple came up to us and said, we've got a house that you can live in. So we moved into that and it was just a strange feeling. We just took the car and we went into this empty house and we just had nothing with us. But then all the church started bringing us stuff, of course, which was amazing and our home group was amazing. Um, and then we went into rented accommodation, and then they rebuilt the house, and it was beautiful, and we lived there for four years. But it completely felt like we didn't need to be there anymore. And we decided, Phil wanted to take early retirement, and it was a lot of prayer, and we set off for, for what was going to be a year of, of going around the world. Um, and I've done this um, presentation in front of many churches across the world, including the Grand Canyon in the deep snow. Um, so we set off for what was a year, and it was three and a half years later that uh, we returned. And we weren't coming back. We just happened to be coming to the Cotswolds to stay here for a, a short time while we went to the camping and caravanning show in Birmingham. And we drove into, Bur into Broadway and both Phil and I looked at each other and said, this is where we're supposed to actually buy a house, isn't it? This is where we're supposed to be. And we knew that God would find us somewhere that would be just right for Ben. And this Broadway just fitted all the criteria as long as we could get close to the high street. And so that's how we ended up here. Marvellous. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Is there any, um, if anyone wants to ask a question, yeah, absolutely. Would you, yeah, know, thank you very much. Put anyone on the spot, but uh, I, I meant to be interviewing, but uh, didn't, uh, <laughs> wasn't asking all those difficult questions. Is there anything that's from that story that you've heard from Jilly that you kind of wanted to ask something of, or how you responded, or to go into a little bit more? I would say that Pam and Mark, we actually came to Chipping Camden Church before. Um, we made that decision mm -hmm. to move here. Obviously, we wanted to find a church. And uh, they very kindly, all the way through um, lockdown, sent us your link every week. Um, so we kind of followed you. 
from a distance. So we were too shy to, to make contact with Martin and Sarah. Wish we had, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but we did it as soon as lockdown was over. So you'd moved in, hadn't you? We'd moved in, yeah. 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 How are your family now about uh, faith? Well, um, very interesting. My lovely sister, um, who's a second sister down, so she's older than me, last week came to stay, and she, I was reading my Bible in the morning, and uh, she said, I'd like you to tell me all about your faith. So I sat down and delightfully shared with her what I could. She, she's a psychologist as well. We're, we come from a long line of people. Because Dad had mental health issues, everyone was kind of looking for answers. So she had quite a lot of answers that fitted in with her training, um, but is very much on a journey. We could see we're very excited about it, and so value only one's prayers for that as well. Yeah. Um, um, our mum and dad died as well. Um, ironically, they both had Christian burials. But um, I just have to leave it with the Lord as to where they were because I, I just don't know the answers. Mm. Um, and some things are a mystery to us, aren't they? And, you know, that's one of the things. But, uh, well, I would just say if anyone listening to this is is not yet a Christian, who has not taken that step, oh, don't hesitate, mm. because it's a wonderful gift from God. He's done all the work. Um, he can't bear to live eternity without us. He just loves us so much, and he's come down to die the most awful death so that we could be with him forever. And one day he's going to return. I mean, that, that's what I hold on to. Mm. There's going to be a new heaven and a, and a new earth. And we're going to see him coming in the clouds. And I long for that day. And I know it will be in his time. And no one knows that day or that hour apart from the Father. But oh, some days you must be the same. I say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And yet we've got, you've got grandchildren. And you know we've all got family members that we love and, and across the world we want people to come to know him first of course so it will be in his timing but all his promises have come true so we know he's coming back for us mm. that's something Amen. to hold on to yeah so looking back at faith now and the faith and the experience you had early on how how would you sort of describe the difference? You talk, you've mentioned works a few times. I know implicitly in all you said, but mm. just as a conclusion, how would you sum up that difference? I think it seemed quite a force. Um, it was a difficult life to live because did I say about Christmas time when I was young? and how the front of the house was completely in darkness. So, okay, we lived in a four-story Victorian house, and the front of the house at Christmas time had to be in complete darkness, <coughs> so that when the Jehovah's Witnesses knocked at the door, they would know that we weren't celebrating. But the back was like Disneyland. And we had <coughs> alcohol and um, 
big Christmas tree and chains and everything up. So it, it, it was a life that seemed so forced. And I think one of my sadnesses was when we'd go to the Kingdom Hall, my dad seemed so happy. And they'd say, Brother Tommy, and he seemed so, so happy. And you'd get home, and that would all change completely. So it was a very confusing faith. We're stepping into the light of the world with Jesus. It's just filled with hope and love and holiness and goodness and faith. Um, faithfulness, rather, the faithfulness of the Lord. There, there's just no comparison. Yeah. Been so good to hear your story. Thank you. A pleasure. Thank you so much. That with us. I hope it's encouraged you. <laughs> Can I pray with you and uh, for us and uh, Alan, if you if you're ready.